0: I'm not going to do my formal introduction to Father Matthew tonight. I'm going to wait until tomorrow uh, when we have everybody else uh, after liturgy. So, uh, but it's a great joy to have Father Matthew here. To answer one question that was brought up, uh, we did go to seminary together for one year, but we knew each other for a number of years prior to that. And I think it's around 23 or 24 years right now, Mm -hmm. approximately. Although I'm not sure either one of us remember the exact moment we met. We know an approximate...
1: We know when we became friends.
0: Yeah, so... Anyway, uh, he's done a lot of youth ministry, and so I think this is going to be a very good topic for us. And he'll introduce things tonight, and then we'll kind of get going tomorrow morning. So thank you, Father Matthew, for coming. Take as much time as you need tonight.
1: Oh, okay.
0: <laughs> if they start leaving, we'll have someone block the door.
1: <laughs> <laughs>
2: Throwing fruit up there. I'm kidding. <laughs> uh, I,
1: I don't know if uh, I need... Do I need to use the microphone? Is that more helpful? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Going. All right. Uh, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, one God, amen. Christ is in our midst.
0: He is, he is and ever shall be. be.
1: Um, so I'll introduce myself just a little bit. Um, and... Uh, Father Michael can do a little more tomorrow, but uh, I've been married since 2005, and um, in 2004 I got a job at St. John Cathedral in Eagle River, Alaska, where I was put in charge of the junior high youth group. So basically for 20 years I've been doing youth ministry in some form, on and off, um, somehow, some way. Um, The topic... Uh, for this retreat is family-based youth ministry family-based youth ministry and I'm gonna I'm taking the material from this book called family-based youth ministry by Mark DeVrice uh, he is a Protestant um, and I've read this book a few times and it was recommended to me by an Orthodox priest who is friends with him and Basically, uh, everything in this book makes sense to me. It makes sense. So I'm not worried about the fact that it's Protestant because he's not challenging our theological presuppositions as Orthodox. Um, And uh, this, this retreat... Is uh, This is the first time that I'm giving this retreat, but the family-based youth ministry approach is something that I've been using for many, many years. Um, So I'm going to speak a lot from my experience. I'm going to give you a lot of quotes from, from the book. Um, And really my goal for the weekend is um, not so much to tell you exactly what to do when it comes to designing and implementing youth ministry in your parish, but really my goal is to change your paradigm and your approach For how you think about youth ministry and how you think about your role in youth ministry and even how you interact with each other and the youth in the parish. So I'm like, maybe this is too ambitious, but my goal is to really change the paradigm. Because quite frankly, in most churches, people... Who uh, There are two groups of people. There are parents with youth clamoring for a youth program, and then there are adults who don't have children or grandchildren in a youth group and think, hey, it's not my responsibility. And by the end of the weekend, I promise you, I promise you, you won't be allowed to walk out the door with either of those mindsets, thinking that, I need somebody else to take care of my kids, or they need to take care of their kids, or somebody else needs to do it. Let's just hire a youth worker. This is the common solution. When is our parish going to have enough money to just hire a youth worker so somebody else can do it? But really, we aren't here to outsource the work Um, And I think, as I was talking to Father Michael about this topic and getting ready for it um, and talking about the demographics of the parish, the size of the parish, uh, the small number of youth that appears to be growing uh, in this parish, um, I said, I really think this is the right time for this group of people to hear this, this approach. So tonight, I I have four talks planned, um, one tonight and three tomorrow. And tonight's talk, we're gonna talk about the problem and its causes. And I'm not going to say anything that's gonna blow your mind. Um, You're probably gonna say, yeah, that makes sense, that makes sense, or I already knew that. And what I'm planning on doing is um, really reading a lot of quotes that I highlighted from the book. And by reading these quotes, you're going to just see The problem takes shape. So um, before we get started, oh, so the title, my unofficial title of this talk is The Problem and Its Causes, Silos, Orphans, and Horizontal Retardation. So hopefully I can explain all of that by the end. (laughs) Um, Before we get going too far, I would like to ask for the demographics of the group. So how many people here um, are parents with children of any age in the house? Okay. All right. So is that three households that I'm counting? One, two, three, four. Four households. Okay. That are here here right now. Okay. And how many are uh, grandparents? Okay, Just grandparents. Oh, grandparents. Grandparents. And of, of that, that group, keep your hand up, how many of you have grandchildren in this church under the age of 18? One. Okay. All right. And so for those of you, uh, so, so it looks like half of the people here tonight don't have grandchildren in this church and are not um, connected via blood to anybody who would require youth ministry in this church. Am I correct? Okay. So you fall into that group of people that might say, well, we're empty nesters, you know, we've got children and grandchildren, and they're in other places, but the youth program's not really our problem. That's really for, for, for Brent and Brittany to figure out along with Father. Right? Okay. So, and, and that's not a criticism. I'm saying this is probably what's happening either consciously or unconsciously. Okay? You might think, not my problem. I've got other things to do. Okay. By the end of the weekend, my goal is to change your mind. And I'll show you how. Um, so, uh, also, let's talk demographics. Is there anybody in this room who really loves sports? Okay? Anybody have a favorite sports team of any sport? Go ahead. Dodgers baseball. Dodgers baseball. You like the Dodgers? Okay. Uh, I grew up in Sacramento, California, and I'm a Giants fan. So, um, you know, proof that the church is true exists between me and Father Michael, because he's a Dodgers fan and I'm a Giants fan, and we can still make the relationship work. Okay?
2: I have a good friend.
1: That's a yeah, yeah. Well, good for him. <laughs> so I just want to for the record I want to say on the record the Giants have won more World Series recently than the Dodgers but the Dodgers you know just spent 1.2 billion dollars on well, four players so exactly good for them, them. I had not seen him in a year Okay so so what what, what what's your name a Billion Bucks What's your name Greg 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 uh, so you love the Dodgers did you grow up loving the Dodgers Okay uh huh from from Brooklyn Okay. And, and do your children love the Dodgers? Not really. Do your parents love the Dodgers? Did your parents love the Dodgers? My
2: parents are gone, but uh, my mom loved the uh, Red Sox, and my dad really wasn't a baseball fan.
1: Okay. All right. Is there anybody who is a fan of a sports team whose children are fans of the same sports team? All right. Yeah? What team?
3: Well, our family kind of likes
1: the Chargers. The Chargers. I'm so sorry. Yeah. Um,
2: no. well,
1: I'm a big sports fan, by the way. I'll talk baseball, basketball, I'll football. I'll in- even talk tennis a little bit. <laughs> we
3: lived in San Diego for a
1: while. Okay. Yeah. So do you, do your kids love the Chargers? Die hard. Okay. Um, did, you ever, did you ever talk to them about the importance of loyalty to the San Diego Chargers? No, it's
2: just
3: in
1: them. Yeah. H- how? I don't
3: know.
1: Just because they lived in San Diego? Yeah,
3: I think so. That's I think where my son gets it from. Did
1: you guys watch the football games on Sundays? Was that like a big thing? Like go to church and then Sunday afternoon you're watching the games? Yeah. Did you buy jerseys? No, I don't think so. No? Did you ever did buy jerseys for us? Oh, okay, okay. So there's you there's memorabilia that you're wearing. Okay. You follow the team, read read about it in the sports section of the newspaper. Did you ever go to any games?
3: Mm-mm, I haven't, he has.
1: Okay. Yeah, so that's like a, in spiritual terms, that's like a pilgrimage, right? Yeah. To, <laughs> right? Okay, so if you think about it, um, like when and our, y- your, your children are grown up yeah. out of the house, when they graduated high school, did you ever sit down and talk to them about the importance of remaining Chargers fans? Yeah. Did you ever worry about them rooting for another football team if they moved out of San Diego? it was just embedded in them right okay so the question is why is it that in the church we think it's going to work to sit down our high schoolers and say listen when you go to college you need to go to church and try to cognitively convince them that this is a good idea why do we think that's going to work because that's not how you transmitted your fandom For the Chargers right it was just part of your life and you didn't say here are five reasons why you need to root for the Chargers you didn't worry about it but how many times do parents come to a priest and say father my child's going off to college and I need you to talk to them so that they stay in the church in college somebody came to me once and asked that question I said I'm sorry where have you been for the last 15 years what have you been doing I can't do it that ship has sailed that ship has sailed right okay so keep that image in your head right and and this is not to say sports fandom is bad or whatever like whatever it it is what it is but we don't try to convince them of it you might say things like if you ever see the movie Rudy right you know, the dad is watching the Notre Dame football. He's like, in this house, we only root for Notre Dame, right? There might be some parents who say that, and the kids latch on to that. Um, but really, like, like, the time and money invested in sports fandom um, normally outweighs the time and money invested in the church. In the, houses, in the houses where the parents are very concerned about their children not going to church when they go to college. Okay? So think about that as we go through the weekend uh, in terms of how are we trying to pass on the faith. So I think I just gave a 20-minute introduction that wasn't even in my notes, so I better get to it before we are here until midnight. All right. So we know, we know that churches die down like forests when they fail to win the next generation of faith in Jesus Christ. The big question is, what is it that wins youth to faith and helps them catch their stride as growing Christians? It isn't playing at church. It isn't unfocused programs to occupy, occupy their time. It is the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the most winsome fact that we have to share with any generation. And in this book, this is a quote from the uh, foreword, in this book, Mark DeVries argues that the most substantial ministry with the most long lasting positive result is the ministry that relates to young men and women as members of families. And our ministry must encourage and strength, strengthen that original village of the family with friendly, non exploitive adults for youth to borrow and they're growing up and for families to borrow too. That's Earl Palmer. Um, In a survey of youth ministry professionals, the study indicated that priorities like providing opportunities for teens and parents to interact and gaining parental involvement in the ministry were very important. But these youth workers evaluated their own achievement of such family-based outcomes as the lowest category in the entire survey. So, and this book was written 30 years ago, so these surveys are from 30 years ago, but I swear, I know the statistics are going to hold up, okay? So, so in a survey, all the youth workers, Protestant youth workers, are like, it's really important to us that we get teens and parents and adults together. And it's like, well, how successful are you with that? We're not successful at all. It's like, if it's so important, why aren't you working on that, right? Because they're spending their time doing other things. So Mark DeVries says that one of his working assumptions is that the contemporary crisis in youth ministry has little to do with programming and everything to do with families. There must be a strategic priority of undergirding nuclear families with the rich support of the extended Christian family of the church. And when these two formative families work in concert, we are most likely to see youth growing into a faith that lasts for the long haul. Um, Kevin Huggins says that personal faith in Christ cannot be mass-produced in adolescence so don't get the idea that by the end of the weekend I'm gonna give you a formula for a program where every kid in the church is gonna love it and you're gonna do all this stuff and like BAM every every kid who grows up here is gonna stay in the church it's not this actually isn't a program it's not a program so um, you have a handout I think called the crisis Right, I want to go through this. The uh, the crisis in youth ministry is, si- and is simply put that the ways we have been doing youth ministry have not been effective in leading our young people to mature Christian adulthood. In this book, the author talks a lot about mature Christian adulthood. That's kind of the buzz term. In orthodox terms, what's the goal? The goal isn't just to keep kids in the church as adults. The goal is salvation, right? It's much bigger and deeper and more intense, but but also it's really more difficult for us to measure, right? So really, we can't say how successful a youth program is until we get to the judgment. (laughs) That's not really fair. At the same time, if you've got 30 kids in a church who go through a teen soyo and not one of them goes to church in college, you might want to ask what was going on in high school, right? I think that's a fair question. So, but this, we, we can talk about mature Christian adulthood, and this table shows you what the author means. So, a childhood faith, an immature faith, would be that good Christians don't have pain or disappointment. The mature adult faith says God uses our pain and disappointment to make us better Christians. The childhood faith says God helps those who help themselves. That's not in the Bible. By the way, the mature adult faith says God helps those who admit their own helplessness. That's much more in line with St. Paul's writings. God wants to make us happy, says the child. God wants to make us holy, says the adult, which might involve pain and suffering. St. Paul simply says, if you are a Christian, you will be persecuted. You will suffer. Like, it, it, it's, I guarantee it, right? That's what he says. Okay, the, the immature faith says, faith will help us always explain what God is doing. And in other words, things will always work out. The mature faith says, faith helps us stand under God's sovereignty even when we have no idea of what God is doing. Even when we have no idea. I don't understand father Anthony Bahu one of our priests in San Diego in November his daughter died and in January 40 days later His wife died and I talked to him and he said I have no idea what's going on I don't understand this is the hardest thing ever and I said yeah, I, I, I don't know either. I don't know either. It's There's no cliche that can make this better so, but, but he was exemplifying the faith by saying, I'm not going to quit on church. I'm not going to quit on God. I just don't understand. And that's just as hard as the grief. Okay, the, mat- the immature faith says the closer we get to God, the more perfect we become. But we know as Orthodox, that's not true. Because we know the closer we get to God, the more we become aware of our own sinfulness. That's what happens to the saints. The immature faith might say, mature Christians have answers. And the mature adult might say, mature Christians can wrestle honestly with tough questions because we trust that God has the answers and that God will reveal it to us in due season if it's necessary. We shouldn't be afraid of the struggle if if we have mature faith. The child will say, good Christians are always strong. Keep that stiff upper lip, right, Karen? (laughs) Like the British. But the mature Christian says, our strength is admitting our weakness. That's what we do in confession. And the childhood faith says, we go to church because our friends are there, we have great leaders, and we get something out of it. And the mature person says we go to church because we belong to the body of Christ. It's not so much what we get out of it, it's what we put into it. That's why we go. So, all of this, like, this term will come up. Mature... Christian adult, like it's it's shorthand. Think of it as shorthand for theosis and someone on the path to theosis in a visible, tangible way. Okay? Like, can we just agree on that for the weekend that we aren't going to argue about the details of what a mature Christian adult is? And we don't have to define it strictly. But this, I just want to paint this picture. So, so keeping teenagers from ever being bored in their faith deprives them of the opportunity to develop the discipline and perseverance they need to live the Christian life. My cousin is the pastor, my aunt and uncle started a non-denominational megachurch in Southern California. And when I was in college, I went down to their church, and if you think your campus is big, they had like 15 acres under one roof. They had color-coded hallways and whatever, and I remember calling my aunt. I was in the, in the middle of the week. I'm walking around I'm like, I can't get back to the church office. She's like, where are you? I'm like, at the corner of the green and the yellow hallways. She's like, okay, go to the coffee shop just down the hall, and then hang a right and hang a left, follow the blue hallway, whatever, right? I'm like, oh, okay, okay. It was, a, it was a big church. They needed two armored trucks to take away the Sunday offering every week. My cousin was the youth, the senior youth pastor. He was in charge of all the youth ministry from like first grade to high school. And he's giving me a tour of their facility and we go into one of the youth rooms. I think it was like sixth to eighth grade or something. And they, they have a stage and I said, what, what are those things at the front of the stage? He says, oh, those are confetti cannons. I'm like awesome (laughs) I want to go to this youth group right Mm. but the point that's being made here is like that's not enough to keep somebody coming back when they're 35 (laughs) confetti cannons were cool when I was in sixth grade like hey can I shoot it no right but we need more than that we need more than that right um, and even and to their credit, my cousins and and my aunt and uncle, like they would admit, like that's that wasn't a, that was just window dressing to get the kids in the room, right? That was just bait. Okay, that's fine, but we can't stop. We can't stop there. So, Christian faith may begin on the mountaintop, but Christian character is formed in the crucible of pain. Mature Christian adults, then, are those people who no longer depend on whistles and bells and confetti cannons to motivate them to live out their faith. They have become proactive Christians, not reactive ones. Okay? Mature Christians are self-motivated. Self-motivated. The ironic fact for most of us is that we spend huge amounts of energy getting more teens involved while ignoring the teens that God has already given us that are in the room. Churches should not be afraid to step back from some of the sacred structures of Sunday school and youth group in order to develop a ministry to teenagers that is clearly designed to build long-term faith maturity. That's one of the premises of this book and of my talk. So um, that was all just from chapter one. Um, In chapter two, he talks about horizontal versus vertical structures. So he has a quote from Edward, the Duke of Windsor, who died in 1977, and he says that the thing that impresses me most about America is the way parents obey their children. (laughs) I don't know when he said that, but that was before 1977. More often than not, this is from Gordon MacDonald, as quoted in The Effective Father. More often than not, children are learning major value systems in life from the horizontal peer culture. The vertical structure is not there in adequate increments of time or intensity to do the job. Um, Mark DeVries says, We can find the primary cause of the current crisis in youth ministry in the ways that our culture and our churches have systematically isolated young people from the very relationships that are most likely to lead them to maturity. Granting our children the privilege of being left alone has served in part to create a wholesale epidemic of adult neglect of the next generation. That was written 30 years ago. I'm here to say the epidemic is getting worse. It's clear that young people grow to maturity in general and to maturity in Christ in particular by being around people who exhibit such maturity themselves. You put preschoolers in a room with preschoolers, they're going to act like preschoolers. You put a few preschoolers in a room with some older kids and some reasonable, responsible adults, and those preschoolers will act above their age and grade level. I see nodding heads. Are there any educators in the room, professional educators? right? Right, um, There are all sorts of experiments that we could talk about, social experiments where kids were isolated or whatever. Like the book "Lord of the Flies" comes to mind, right? Like, they, they, they didn't get better on their own. Okay. Um, a great deal of America's social sickness comes from age segregation if 10 14 year olds are grouped together they will form a lord of the Flies culture with its competitiveness and meanness but if 10 people ages 2 to 80 are grouped together they will fall into a natural age hierarchy that nurtures and teaches them all and for our own mental and societal health and i would say spiritual health we need to reconnect the age groups that's a quote from mary Piper, I'm going to try to give credit to anybody who's not marked of rice. Otherwise, just assume it's marked of rice. The single most disturbing conclusion, as recorded in the book, Being Adolescent, by Mihaly Csikszentmihalyi <laughs> and Reed Larson, was the unprecedented unavailability of adults and teenagers' lives. The study revealed that teenagers spend less than 7% of their waking hours with any adults while spending approximately half of their time with peers that was 30 years ago so if if a teenager is awake for 16 hours a day 7% is 67 minutes with an adult and today how much more so with tablets and whatever okay um, Cornell University's Yuri Braun b- Bronfenbrenner cites nine cultural shifts that have taken place during the past couple of generations, changes which have increasingly separated children and youth from the world of adults, especially the adults in their own families. So here, uh, there are nine that are cited, and then I'll add two more of my own at the end. So number one, these are just cultural trends. Um, Fathers' vocational choices that remove them from the home for lengthy periods of time. Like, I talked to a guy last week who is a, was an airplane mechanic, and he said, I've been married for 10 years, and I've been gone for literally half of that time for work, working overseas. That's a lot. That's a lot. Um, number two, an increase in the number of working mothers. Double-income families are normal now critical number three a critical escalation in the divorce rate number four a rapid increase in single parent families number five a steady decline in the extended family right you might have extended family in other places that you can't get to for the record my in-laws live right next door and it's really a blessing it's great um but it's also when we lived at seminary, we had, we had one kid when we started, three kids when we finished, and we didn't have any family around, so we got to experience that time of being away from extended family, and it's hard. It's hard. It changes the dynamics. Number six, the evolution of the physical environment of the home. So remember, these are shifts that have isolated children from adults, and especially adults in their own home. So as homes get bigger, you now have not just one family room and a living room. You've got two family rooms, two living rooms, a den, a playroom, a basement, a garage, a shop, a giant backyard, right, and bedrooms, Right? The size of Rhode Island. <laughs> These are McMansions. These are McMansions. And, um, and so what happens? Everybody can be home and nobody's together. Um, number seven, the replacement of adults by the peer group. Number eight, the isolation of children from the work world, which isn't a bad thing in and of itself, but we've lost the whole apprenticeship uh, time of life when 12, 13-year-olds would spend their time with with, um, a master of a craft. Number nine, the insulation of schools from the rest of society. Like, this is getting worse. Schools are telling parents, you have no right to interfere with what we're doing to your children during this time. It's crazy. All right, and these are two that I'm adding to this list. Individualized entertainment devices like iPhones and iPads. What happens in the home? You can be sitting at home, totally entertained, and never see another person all day long. And a big family. Because you're sitting in your room chatting on the internet or whatever. And the other thing that I'll add is busy schedules. Even the idolatry of busy schedules. Well, if we're not busy, then we're not succeeding. We gotta do Boy Scouts, Girl Scouts, soccer, hockey, baseball, football right theater everything every night of the week is planned and structured and busy and it's like when are you ever together in such a situation parents become merely taxi cabs like unpaid uber drivers (laughs) right uber drivers and doordash delivery people that's that's the dynamic right so so As families prospered, they no longer found it necessary to work and eat together. We went from the Little House on the Prairie model to the Peanuts Charlie Brown model, where there are no parents involved. I love Charlie Brown. I love the cartoon. right? I love the Peanuts movie that came out a few years ago. It's awesome. There are no parents. And every time a parent is involved, it's wah-wah, 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 (laughs) wah-wah. But my kids are watching Little House on the Prairie right now. And the family's working and living and praying together. All the time. It's in in the opposite of a McMansion, right? So the natural bridge from childhood to adulthood was severely weakened and in some homes removed altogether. With one in four young people now indicating that they have never had a meaningful conversation with their father, is it any wonder that 76% of the 1,200 teens surveyed in USA Today actually want their parents to spend more time with them? And if you want more information about some of these things that I quote, like I've got it all noted here, and and it's footnoted in the book. the more successful, in the same vein, the more successful the youth program, especially at bigger churches, often the more exacerbated the isolation becomes. This is what I talk about, the silos, the silo effect. We put the kids here, we're gonna have the the 13 to 19 year olds here, we're gonna have the 55 and older here, and they're never gonna meet. That those are silos, right? We don't need more Charlie Brown situations. We actually need more Mary Poppins stories where the nanny reconnects the kids to the parents, right? Oh, Mr. Banks, you're taking your kids to work. What a great idea. He's like, wait, wait, what? <laughs> right? And by the end, they're flying a kite together. She's teaching him how to interact with his own kids. When was Mary Poppins done, like the early 60s? How much worse has it gotten? We need more of that, right? We need more of those stories that reconnect families. The less capable the church is at programming, listen carefully, The less capable a church is at programming, the more responsibility the youth and adults in the church will be required to take, and the more time they wind up spending together to make the program work. There are worse things a church can do for its teenagers than providing a miserable program for them and patently isolating them from Christian adults is the worst thing that you can do. So, you can take a deep breath and say, okay, we have about 15 youth under the age of 18 in this parish, roughly. We don't really have a youth program. It's okay. It's all right, actually. And by the end of the weekend, you're going to understand why but hopefully you're already getting the idea. Um, Recently in January, I took my family, I have five children, and my wife and I took our five children to the kingdom of Tonga. That is, for those who are not familiar, near Fiji, Um, and it's northwest of Australia and New Zealand, across the Pacific Ocean. We went on a two-week mission trip with our family. We didn't get a Tropical vacation this year, we did a mission trip. And we went and we saw our friends who are missionaries from Eagle River, from the neighboring church, and uh, they are godparents to our fourth child. So, Michael and Megan Jones are OCMC missionaries in Tonga. And in Tonga, at the Church of St. George, there are four families there's the priest and his family, there's Michael and Megan and their four kids, there's a uh, Russian. Woman married to a Serbian man and their kids, and then there's like a Tongan family who's uh, inquiring and might be catechumen soon. Like, that's it. That's it. Michael and Megan's kids do everything in the church. Their 11-year-old daughter is learning to Byzantine chant. She's great. She can do half of it in Greek. It's amazing. But she has this opportunity because there's a need. (laughs) And they don't say, you have to wait till you're 18, till you're 25, till you get your Byzantine chant certificate. Her dad, Michael, is a tonsured reader and a a really um, good Byzantine chanter. And she stands next to her dad in the services and is learning how to chant. Like, they just do everything. They provide the hospitality. They do the coffee hour. The kids are involved in every aspect of the church because there's no youth program. There's no youth program at all. And it's not, it's, is it ideal? No, it's not ideal. And I'm not here to say that that situation is ideal and we should just throw out all programming and call it a day. That's not it. Right? But is it okay? Is it going to be hurtful to their soul? Probably not. So whatever new models for youth ministry we develop, we must take seriously the fact that teenagers grow toward mature Christian adulthood as they are connected to the total body of Christ, not isolated from it. So I'll tell you a story that will come up again. I grew up in a small church in Sacramento at St. Athanasius. And the church, uh, in terms of membership, was probably a little bit smaller than your church is now. And there were, like, four families with kids, and we formed the youth group. So I was the the nerdy church kid who loved going to church and loved—I couldn't get enough of Holy Week and whatever. And pretty much everybody else, including my brother and sister, like, they were fine going to church— on the weekends but like really don't ask them to go above and beyond too much like they were they were fine not like opposed um but uh, but I was the nerdy church kid. And I wanted to do soyo stuff. And I would go to the conferences and the retreats and whatever and try to meet other kids who loved churches as much. And when I was 17, I went to Camp St. Nicholas for the first time. That's where Father Michael and I really became friends because Father Michael, Father John Mafous, Deacon Peter Seymour, uh, and Deacon Michael Haddad. Like, I met all these guys who were a little bit older than me. They were counselors and they loved church just as much as I did. I'm like, oh, Oh my gosh, I found my people. This is what I've been looking for. I didn't have someone like that in my parish. So I was by default, the teen soyo president. Okay. Um, there were no elections. It was one, two, three, not it. And I was the one like, I'll do it. When I was 18, my dad was a deacon in the church. And the parish council met every single Monday. And basically, it was in such a small church, it was just a group of, of guys meeting with the priest on the patio every Monday. And sometimes they talked talk church business, sometimes they wouldn't. One night, my dad comes home when I'm 18, and he says, hey, I've got good news for you about the youth group. I'm like, okay. So I'm 18 and trying to do something. And he says, Well, we were talking, and because you're 18, we're going to make you the adult advisor for the Teen Soyo. And you're going to remain the Teen Soyo president. <laughs> and that way you can do whatever you want, you don't have to ask anybody. <laughs> and I'm like, But then I have nobody to help me. So, what they thought was a great idea made me feel abandoned. You want to talk about isolation? You're 18, you've got all this zeal and energy and we aren't going to have any adult help you or mentor you. Like, really? Really? How do you think that went? It, nothing happened. Literally nothing happened. And I wasn't able to articulate that. Like, I didn't understand the feeling at the time but I was just like, I don't know if this is good news. But okay, we'll give it a like you're making it sound like it could be okay. So what happens? I'm 18, I'm like, hey guys, let's take a field trip. Then the parents are on me like, hey, you didn't make assign a permission slip for this field trip. I'm like, did I have to do that? I didn't know. How am I supposed to know? Nobody's telling me what to do. So so years later, years, years later, after seminary, I was able to articulate to my dad, like, hey, just want you, you to know, you guys like left me hanging. And, and it, that was no bueno. And he said, yeah, you're right. I'm, I'm sorry. He said, I'm, I'm very sorry on behalf of the whole group. Okay. So that's isolation. Like that's not going to work at all. And I have proof of it. The experiment has been done and it doesn't work. All right. So... So my point is, teenagers won't learn the skills required of mature adults in a peer-centered youth Sunday school class. They won't learn these skills by talking with their friends. The maturation process occurs as the less mature have repeated opportunities to observe, dialogue, and collaborate with the more mature. That should just be common sense. Okay. For too long, young people have been told that their greatest problems are drugs, sex, alcohol, etc. These are, in fact, only symptoms of a much greater disease. The disease of youth is that their key relationships are in disarray. Their relationships with God, self, parents, friends, and the world. It's all out of whack. And this is coming from a secular film producer named Charles Warren. That's not even coming from a youth worker. One of the keys to successful adult relationships beyond the superficial level, for example, like relationships of parenting, marriage, church membership, is one of the keys to a successful relationship like that is a commitment to demonstrate love in spite of pain, love in spite of conflict, love in spite of Frustration and young people learn to love through the long haul as they are surrounded by adults who over and over again demonstrate this kind of enduring, long suffering love. We now live in an image centered culture rather than a word centered. Culture and living in an image centered culture produces adults who are moved more by impression than by rational thinking. Teenagers' isolation from adults leaves them severely limited in their ability to think critically and to dialogue. Okay, even our hospitals have emojis on the wall. What's your pain level? one through ten isn't enough good bad really bad like no it's happy faces and sad faces where are you there are teenagers that i know that communicate almost exclusively by emoji and the question is how do you dialogue with somebody about those deepest most important issues in your life if all you have are happy faces sad faces Right? And a world of emojis. You can do a lot with emojis, but seriously, like, I know somebody, I know a uh, baby boomer was trying to text and thought that she was doing the prayer emoji. It was a nose. She was doing it for three years. Her kids never told her. They thought it was funny. It was a nose, not the hands folded prayer emoji. Oops oops right prayers for you like there are so many shortcuts that you can get wrong laugh out loud right lol like I I read a story once hey uncle Jim just died lol like wait what it's not a laugh out loud oh I thought that meant lots of love right Like you there are web pages dedicated to this stuff right but you, ha- we will never get wit- rid of our words and our critical thinking, right? Christ is the Word of God. He's not the emoji of God. We have to be able to dialogue, but we can't teach our kids this if we're isolating them. The young, people, the young people who are fortified with significant relationships with adults are consistently the ones who are able to resist involvement in negative behaviors. Their relationships with these adults gives teenagers perhaps the most compelling argument for making healthy moral choices. Stephen Glenn and Jane Nelson did some research to confirm this thesis peer influence correlates closely with the rise in rebellion resistance chemical abuse and promiscuity children who have strong perceptions of closeness and trust with significant adults are highly resistant to peer influence and are more heavily influenced by those adults who validate for them who they are right you want so so you guys you want your baby girl to like grow up and make good choices, like what you're doing right now, it matters. The attachment that you're forming right now matters. When your daughter, sir, it's Aspen, right? When your daughter knows that you love her, she will be able to tell a stupid boyfriend to buzz off. But if you're absent, she's gonna be looking for love in all the wrong places, right? Like that's the second time tonight I've quoted Eddie Murphy. <laughs> quoted him, quoted him at dinner. The Saturday Night Live you guys remember that? Oh my gosh, so funny. Um, but, but that relationship matters. The, 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 you, so kids who are surrounded by adults who love them are far less likely to get into trouble. Far less likely. Youth culture, like most youth ministries, is essentially an orphaning structure. It does not carry its members through life. Rather, it orphans them at the very time they are most in need of a stable culture. So, for example, a seven-year-old child went through his parents' devastating divorce. And for months after the divorce, he was wetting his pants. His father tried everything to correct the problem. He read books. He took his son to the doctor. He sent off for programs. Nothing worked. Bribes, incentives, nothing worked. Finally, the father sat his seven-year-old son down and said, What's going on? Babies do this. And the boy answered back, And their daddies hold them. Often teenagers don't have the clear insight of this seven-year-old. But most want the same thing. They want to be held in a family where the love is secure, where they know they belong, where there is someone older and stronger to carry some of the load. When my mom died, she died the day after Christmas last year, Um, And after a 12 12 to 15 month battle with lung cancer, and just as a side note, this isn't in my notes, um, you don't lose a battle to cancer when you die. The battle is won or lost based on how you live through it and deal with it. If you don't die from cancer, you'll die from something else. So that's not the loss. And especially in orthodox circles where we have hope in the resurrection of Christ. Resurrection from the dead. So the battle is won or lost in the living, not the dying. Okay? So please, for my sake, I hope you remember this. You'll probably remember the wrong thing from the retreat. Don't say somebody lost their battle from cancer when they died. I don't think that's fair. Um, Anyway, when my mom died, I think my kids, my five children, I think they really handled the grief like champs because my wife and I were very honest with them all the way through the process. We took them to see my mom a couple of different times where we said this might be the last time. Give her a hug, give her a kiss. Like, say goodbye and deal with the hard feelings that are coming, and we're right here with you to, to help you. It was, I think overall, a very healthy way for a family to grieve together. Father Michael had a glimpse into that. He's close with our family. He saw our kids during the week of the funeral. And um, there's definite sadness, but nothing that you would say is abnormal or unhealthy. But my children, so so my wife and I brought the day after, two days after Christmas, we flew our family to Sacramento, and along came my father-in-law and mother-in-law with us. And my wife's sister and her husband and two kids from Salt Lake City made it to the funeral as well. So think about that extended family. And then we all rented an Airbnb and my wife and I and a couple kids stayed at my dad's house and a few blocks down the road, the rest of the family is there. Right, like so. As an extended family, we're all kind of together during the week, going through the process. So when my wife and I were with my dad, trying to help him and support him, my kids were with grandma and grandpa, and and getting whatever support they need and eating very well. <laughs> of, course. of course, teenagers. <laughs> We don't have In-N-Out Burger or Chick-fil-A in Alaska, so like, that's on the diet when we travel pretty much all the time. But you see my point? Like, no. mom and dad can only do so much, but the extended family like gathers around all of us. And even my dad, here's how special my mom was. She has three children, and all three children are married, and all three mothers-in-law made it to the funeral. Unbelievable, right? So even my sister had her extended family. My brother had his extended family there. It was amazing. It was amazing. So that's maybe not the pinnacle of health, but maybe something to keep in mind. Like that's an example of healthy um, relationships and how it helps a really difficult time. I was never worried about my kids acting out out of grief for their grandmother. Never. Not once. So the question we must ask is, are we connecting our kids to nurturing relationships that will last them after they complete their teenage years? Or are we simply exploiting them as public relations tools to make our ministries appear successful? Like, hey, come to our church. We've got all these teens showing up. We've got a great program. Exploit might be a strong word, but it kind of like nudges the idea in the right direction. Mark DeVries, in this book, submits that unless we are making intentional, focused efforts at connecting kids with mature Christian adults in the church, and not just their youth leaders, and not just their priests then we are more like the vultures preying on kids at rock concerts and less like spiritual leaders praying that their children's lives would be founded upon the most eternal things. Unless we are making intentional, focused efforts at connecting kids with mature Christian adults in the church, we are letting them down. The most important priority a church can have in its work. I see some people taking notes, so I'll say this again because I just said the most important priority a church can have in its work with teenagers is providing them with opportunities for significant dialogue and relationships with mature Christian adults. This priority does not require a massive budget or an extensive program. It does require a group of adult leaders in the church who will make the creation of relationships between adults and teenagers the central priority of the youth ministry. Um, I'm staying with the Hefners, and we were talking last night and this morning about some of their volunteer work with CASA. Is this not what CASA does? Is that you spend you adults spend time with children many, many hours. Like I have somebody in my parish who's looking into this, and she said it's like 10 hours a week that they're asking for, for this, but so so maybe less. But you spend extensive time with the child and get to know them, and then and then you go before a judge and advocate on their behalf. Right? But it doesn't come from like, well, I put the kid through this curriculum and this awesome color in the lines program. <laughs> Mr. Judge, I know this kid. They can color in the lines, and therefore, you should decide this. Like, it's not about curriculum, it's about relationship. Like, you can almost put that on a bumper sticker for your youth ministry or a t shirt. Like, St. Ignatius Teen Soyo, not about curriculum, but about relationship. We must not be afraid to instill the value of participating in weekly corporate worship with the entire church family as a central priority for the youth ministry. And I can guarantee in this church that worship will always be at the foundation of every ministry. We started this retreat with Vespers, right? It's in the center of everything. Um, So we we can't compartmentalize the church in a way that's detrimental to the people we're trying to serve and heal. We can compartmentalize it to help organize a little bit, right? Okay, so if there's a ladies leader, there's a teen leader, a young adult leader, maybe a retiree group leader, fine, like that's okay. But if everybody is isolated and coming at the priest one by one, saying we want to do this, do that, Like, all the ministries could possibly stay segregated. You could have, possibly, coffee hour, where everybody, the kids are over here, the adults are over there. And without some intentionality, you might miss the mark on what is actually needed. It doesn't require a program, it requires relationships. And tomorrow in the three lectures, we're gonna talk more about the relationships and how to foster them and nurture them and strengthen them so that you can say no matter the demographics in the church, there's a cohesive foundation for everybody to grow, go from, from young to old you can hatch them and dispatch them in this church. And everybody will be uh, together. Together in that. And affected and loving. And ultimately, you'll, you'll be able to bring people to Christ. To the love of Christ throughout all, all ages. Through all ages and all experiences in the church. Are there any questions about something that I've said tonight? Questions, comments? Yeah, please. What's your name? Rachel. Rachel. Uh,
2: Father, can I get a copy of your notes?
1: (laughs) Sure. Actually, it'd be better if you just buy the book. book. (laughs) Because all my notes literally come out of the book. Okay, good to know. But just so you know, I am recording this. I'm wearing a lapel mic and I'm recording this for my own personal use. Um, and, uh, and my own like self-criticism. <laughs> and I can, I can give you a copy of the recording, too. I, I would greatly appreciate it. Um, sure. I, I actually have a podcast on Spotify. It's called Sermons from St. Hermans.
2: <laughs>
1: and uh, I post my homilies. I started doing it during COVID and I post my homily, so I'm probably just gonna post this. The funny thing is at the end of the year I get this uh, review, this automatic um, summary of the podcast, right? And uh, I've got ones of followers. Ones of followers. Or singles of followers, I mean like I don't like like it said here's how many people subscribe like eight <laughs> I think I think three of them belong to my sister <laughs> um, and uh, <laughs> who, who is Matthias's godmother, by the way, M- many of you might know her um, but then it'll say like here's how many hours of content you had and I'm like, yeah, how many Sundays are in a year and how many feast days did I preach at' Like, it, so I, I'm, I don't do it for fame or anything, but like some people have asked for it. and So I, I will clip this probably next week and post it. But honestly, um, what I did, I'll, I'll pull back the curtain on the process. I read the book twice. I read the book years ago. I read the book again over the past year, and I highlighted a whole bunch of stuff. And I typed up every quote that was highlighted, and I just put it together. So, all of these quotes are there in the book. So, I guess I wrote a Cliff's Notes version. (laughs) Right? Cliff's Notes? It's like. Cliff Notes. Yeah. Cliff Notes? Cliff. Cliff, singular. Okay.
2: Who's
1: who's Cliff? I don't know. Who's Cliff? I think he's. I don't know who Cliff is, but I think he's related to Robert in his Rules of Order. All right, uh, are, are, there, are there any other questions? Yeah, Debbie, yeah. I don't know who I was listening to, but this... Do, do, you, do you want to use the microphone for the sake of everybody else? No. <laughs> can, can you hear her? Can you hear yeah. yeah just speak a I,
3: just, I just wanted to say that I was listening to a podcast recently, and I don't know who was speaking, but it was along these lines. It was a, I think it was a priest. Like I said, I caught it in the middle. But it was a man talking about his children attending a church where there weren't a lot of young children and that some would see that as a negative but he was saying what a positive positive it had been for his children and how they were so comfortable talking to people of different ages that they even went to like a monastery on a trip and their his young little eight-year-old boy said i want to eat lunch with the brothers is that okay
1: right right (laughs)
3: and he was like totally comfortable eating with the monks and you know, he said my kids are fine with their peers, but how you know how many children would be comfortable sitting at a luncheon with a bunch of older men, <laughs> monks? Right. And um, he was just saying all the positives that it was to be in this church where they had built relationships with older, older people.
1: Yeah. Did you did you hear that in the back? Yeah. Yeah. It's um. It's it's one of the most underrated social skills that any kid can have, and that's the ability to talk to people outside of their peer group. Um, And I saw this in Fiji, my son is 16, and I think he's actually exceptional. I think he's exceptional and probably not the rule. Um, But he was able to seamlessly interact with a nearly 70-year-old Fijian priest, so cross-age, cross-culture. Um, very comfortably, make friends with a 13-year-old Fijian boy so they could, like, wrestle together, and then also hang out with an 8-year-old Russian boy who has no peers in this church. And, and my son Luke was able to say, Come along, Daniel, like, let's go, and, and seamlessly made everybody feel at ease. Right? Unbelievable. I have no idea how he did it. And or where like it's just it comes naturally to him. He's not even trying, but he just has that ability. And he's very loving. That's part of it. Very loving. So um, it's very important, very important. And I have, uh, again, I'll pull back the curtain. I have children at my church who are greeters. My 10 year old daughter wears a little name tag that says, welcome to St. Herman's. She stands at the back door. And she greets people. Actually, what she's doing is hunting for babies.
2: <laughs>
1: because we had a visitor a couple weeks ago who came up and kissed the cross, said, the come. And I'm like, this guy's Orthodox, but he didn't receive communion. And, and, but then he was gone before I could catch him at coffee hour. He didn't stay for coffee hour. I asked my daughter Lydia. What was, what was that guy's name? I don't know. I don't ask people's names. I just wait for the babies to come in the door. <laughs> All right. We got a little training to do with our ushers. Okay. But at the same time, at the same time, and I had my son at, like, as an usher this summer, kind of as an experiment. I moved him from the altar to the narthex. I said, I want you to have that experience back there. He didn't like it. But everybody Everybody told me, oh my gosh, it's so great having Luke at the door when we walk in. He'll hold the door for us. He'll run out to the parking lot and help us in so we don't fall. Like he's so amazing. His smile and he just says, hello, good morning. He'll give, he'll give a hug to the people who need a hug and he knows how to do that. His emotional intelligence is off the charts, right? Um, but that really only come, it's, it, it is a learned skill. It is a learned skill, and he's been surrounded by people who have been able to teach him this, right? So, um, yeah, go ahead. Oh, no, no, go, go ahead. I, I think I'm done.
4: No, no. Um, I was just gonna make a or ask a question with regards to you were talking earlier about your extended family and um, sending your kids off with them and like just the relationships built with that. So, we're very close with my side of the family. We're very close with his side of the family. They all live here in town. We're all. You know they know our
1: both sides yeah. live here yeah. awesome
4: and so um what advice would you have we we trust both sides of the family as well in terms of just you know everything but they're not orthodox so what is your and maybe you'll talk about this tomorrow more but does that matter with regards to some of those relationships you were talking about um
1: in terms uh, uh mostly no okay mostly no Um, I grew up in a house where my parents converted with the EOC in 1987. So it was 1983. My parents joined an EOC church. Okay. EOC, Evangelical Orthodox Church. If you want to know more, Peter Gilquist's book, Becoming Orthodox, right? That journey. Um, There were were mass ordinations at St. Nicholas Cathedral, February 15th, 1987. I was three years old. My dad was ordained a deacon with Metropolitan Philip playing hopscotch (laughs) around an altar that was two square feet smaller than this altar that you have here. (sighs) Right? Two square feet. (laughs) Father Michael and his family were there, I'm sure. I'm sure sure they were there. Um, So anyway, so I grew up Orthodox. So my parents are converts. My mom's parents were Presbyterian. And they were the type of people who would go to um, church on Sundays and attend funerals and attend some church events, but they weren't like pillars of the church. They'd give their money and they were faithful, but they were they were just there and not in a problematic way. Um, My dad's parents were Methodist. And they, uh, my grandmother, when she died at age 87, had been in the same parish for 70 years and did everything except be a pastor <laughs> in the parish and play the organ. She couldn't play the organ. She donated an organ before she died as her legacy. They're like, oh my goodness. She, so she, and, but she was the type who would, uh, I'm going to talk about her later uh, tomorrow, but she was the type who would um, like pick us up in the summer. And say, come on, you're going to help me feed the kids in the neighborhood with the school lunch program. Right. She would any event that was going on, she would try to invite us into um, at her church. She would also show up at our church for parish events. Right. Parish is having a, a big feast, a celebration, Pascha feast, a work day. My grandfather helped, was helping my dad, like, pour sidewalks and build roofs and do whatever, right? So so it didn't really matter. It's just like, hey, we're family. We're all doing this together. That was my dad's side of the family. Um, my mom's sister and her husband started the, the Pentecostal non-denominational church. Um, and they are... Uh, so I have three cousins who are pastors and, and that family, I went to a Lutheran grade school and a Jesuit high school, but I grew up Orthodox. So my point is we were surrounded by non-Orthodox family. So what happens on Christmas Eve? My grandmother calls my mom, Hey, we want to have you over for dinner on Christmas Eve. My dad's like, we've got church, right? So we would do like a vesperal liturgy, or Vespers in the evening, right? We'd, and then we go to grandma's for dinner and then we have liturgy the next day. And it was a little clunky. It was just a little clunky. And I think there were some tense moments because my dad was like, we have to do this. And my mom's like, we have to do this with the family. And I was like, we have to do the church thing. And they had to work it out. Okay, so like a lot of you can probably relate if you're converts. I wouldn't worry about it too much. I would do the best you can. Theologically, you'll hear, this is the first lecture tomorrow. Theologically, you will will find out that your kids are going to be tied to you at the hip. So you don't have to be afraid if grandma and grandpa want to take them to vacation Bible school at whatever Christian church in town during the summer. They want to make some lanyards, sing some songs, it's really not a big deal, right? If you have, if you have a son, he might still become a priest. Like again, I, I wouldn't worry about it too much. And um, I think it's important though, in a family systems dynamic, I do think it's important to say, this is important to us. And even if you disagree with it, we would appreciate it if you would support us and our kids in this, so that they don't feel torn between loyalties. That's not fair to put on the kids, to sort out a theological division between mom and grandma. That's not fair. So even, so. You could say, we can talk as adults, leave our kids out of it. And I think that's healthy to draw those boundaries. And if you don't, and you're afraid of offending somebody because of something you truly believe in, then we need to have a separate talk. Probably you need to have a separate talk with your priest about whatever's going on inside of you. Right? Right? so um so like we would you know like we you can make it work you make it work and you can also understand hopefully this is a one generation problem my kids grew up with both grandparents (laughs) both sets of grandparents orthodox all cousins orthodox because my wife and i have been orthodox all of our life right so our kids don't have that problem. They say, "Hey grandma, we're going to church for Christmas. We'll see you tomorrow afternoon because that's that's when all the liturgies are done. Liturgy at your church, liturgy at our church, we'll get together and break the fast as a family, right? And share our stories. Like it's a really beautiful thing. Right. Why can't my dad, who's a priest, why can't he come to our church for Pascha? Because my kids know he's serving at his church in Sacramento. That's not a family issue. It's like it's just part of the deal. And then you call and say, hey, Christ is risen. You know, well, he's risen for you. He's not risen for us yet because of the time difference. Right. It's okay. It's kind of fun. It's kind of fun. So did you just say your dad's a priest? Yeah, my dad's a priest. See, I don't know what Father Michael has in his formal introduction. So I'm kind of like letting it it out little by little. But yeah, I grew up as a deacon's kid. And then when I was 24, my dad was ordained a priest uh, at age like 55 or so. He was a deacon for 20 years, and Santa Joseph, it took him about seven years, saying, I want you to be a priest. My dad's like, no, you don't. No, you don't. And then he said, finally, Sadna said, you don't trust me. And my dad's like, actually, in this matter, I don't. Actually, and Santa said, well, we need to work on this. And it took seven years. It was a long process. There were lots of issues involved. But yeah, my dad, so I didn't grow up as a priest kid. I grew up as a deacon's kid. Um, but, but those family dynamics, like it was, all, it was all okay. My extended family came to my mom's funeral. My cousin, who's the, now the senior pastor of the big church, they've got 2,000 members in their church, and they've launched a campus in Idaho I don't think it's Twin Falls. I would have told you. Uh, but somewhere, somewhere in Idaho, the Cause Church, and, um, and now they're launching a campus in Dallas. And, and they're good conservative Christians. My cousin came to my mom's funeral, and I gave my mom's eulogy. And my cousin said, I am so proud of you. That was a beautiful service. Like, that, you did a great job. It's like, okay. And he said, I, don't, I didn't understand half of what you guys were doing. I didn't. And, and I don't know if I agree with everything theologically, but we get along great. And the joke was, I went, so uh, again, as you can tell, I can talk. <laughs> the joke was, I gave a 26-minute eulogy for my mom. My dad was in the front row trying to cut me off and get me to stop. <laughs> but I, I just ignored it. I didn't even see him. I, I would have ignored him if I saw him. Um but my cousin who's you know Protestant he he said he was just kind of laughing he's like yeah I can picture uncle Jeff doing that like he's just kind of funny that way but he said Matthew don't worry about it he said my introduction's not over after 26 minutes he said it seemed just fine so huh uh, it was it was yeah by the grace of god but Um, so I think these relationships are, are good and they, they plant seeds and it's healthy to have dialogue about the differences and this and that, but your kids are going to follow your lead. That'll be lecture two. It's chapter four. So really I'm going about three chapters at a time with each talk. There's a 12 chapter book, a couple chapters I'm skipping, but yeah, it's in there. Uh, Any last questions? I think we need to wrap up. Uh, it's. It is late. I'm so sorry. Uh, any last questions about? Are there any disagreements about the idea of children being isolated from adults? No. Yeah. Go ahead, sir.
2: Oh, no disagreement. But...
1: Do you agree yeah. with that that concept? I mean, it's not like oh. completely provo- provable statistically, but I went through it. you went through it. Yeah. A lot of time- Yeah. But so, but I did have a question. What causes that like, mindset? Uh, so, what causes the mindset of parents to kind of like? Not just parents, but it's sort of like um, it's not really hyper individualism, but it's like um, that that sense of a lack. of... So, yeah, the, the sense of not wanting to do things with your kids or with any kids. With
2: anybody, yeah.
1: With anybody. Um, there is a whole chapter on individualism. I'm going to touch on it a little bit. Um, so this is my opinion, okay? And, th- I mean, this is not dogmatic. This is my opinion. There is a selfishness in our culture that results partly from our luxury. That if I want to be comfortable, at the end of a long day of work, what do I want to do? I want to kick up my feet, maybe drink a glass of wine or a nice old-fashioned,
2: <laughs>
1: and, um, and, and I really just want to zone out, uh, right? There's a term called vegging. I want to sit on the couch and veg and, and it's really easy to say like, I don't have the energy to play hide and seek. I don't have the energy to play cards or to whatever. And so selfishly, I'm just gonna check out. And you tell yourself, it's just this once. But just this once becomes every single opportunity. So one of my friends, Father Tom Frizzell, he was an assistant priest in Eagle River uh, for 15 years. And so um, he and I, were we worked together and we were neighboring priests. And he was a Lutheran pastor before becoming Orthodox. So he told me the story. He has four children, um, one of whom, like the oldest, is like mid-20s now, late-20s. But when his two oldest boys were like four and two years old, He's a Lutheran pastor. He's at home. He's working probably on a sermon. I mean, he's working on something at home. And it's, of course, very important because it's church work. And if it's church work, it's more important than anything. That's the trap that we allow ourselves to fall into. And his boys come tearing through the house. Dad, Dad, come see the thing that we built outside. I don't even know what it was. A bike ramp, a castle, like who knows? Dad, dad, come on, come see real quick. Hold on, I've got work. I'm going to be there. I'll, I'll be there in a few minutes. And it's two-year-old. James says, you're going to miss it. You're going to miss it. And they just keep going. And he's like, typing, working, like, I don't want to miss it. And he gets up and goes, Right? But he told me that when, I, when my son was one. And, and, um, and I'm going off to seminary. He tells me that story. And when I was at seminary, it was all day. Sometimes 6 a.m. to 10 p.m., Kind of crazy, they talk about work-life balance and they don't give it to you. <laughs> they don't model it for you, you have to take it. Oh man, I got stories from my third year, like I fought back, <laughs> I, I just stopped going to mandatory things. <laughs> anyway, but I would get home, and what's the first thing you do when you get home? You kiss the wife and then you gotta go do homework. And my wife would say, have you spent 15 minutes with your son today? no she's like come on he's only gonna be this age once he's only gonna like you at this age once get on the floor and play with him and she would have to literally tell me to go and I would set a timer because my internal um, motivating factor is all this pressure to finish all this work that's very important so I can go save all these other people and in the meantime I'm risking, I'm putting at high risk the most important people God has entrusted to me. 15 minutes, that's what it took. That's what it took. But we have a, so my opinion is, we're selfish and we'd rather indulge in our own entertainment. Because it's easier, it's a path of least resistance. You burn fewer calories watching TV than you do sleeping. Did you know that? You're like hypnotized. And now it's worse with the screen right in front of you in your hand. Okay. Um, And so that's one reason. And we have a workaholic culture, especially for dads. Right? I got to work 60 hours a week for the next 20 years so that I can retire early and be financially independent. Well, by the time you retire, you're not going to have an adult kid who's going to want to have anything to do with you because you were an absentee parent. So greed, money, I don't know. And also fear. Children are scary. Can we just admit this? (laughs) Like, yeah, it's funny. It's also true. Because it requires a total commitment. And selflessness. And that's hard for us, especially Americans. So it's, it's hard. So... I, those are my opinions. I was
4: just going to make a comment. We, we. Made
1: well, you you got to speak up no, so saying, they can hear you.
4: I made a comment, uh, or I was just going to make a comment that we made the quote unquote mistake of teaching our kids, or teaching our son, the Cats in the Cradle song. So now whenever <laughs> we, um, uh, it's a seventy song about. Uh, it. Oh, I know. Yeah. Anyway, we taught him that song and then we explained the meaning to him and now sometimes when we say oh just a second he'll start singing it oh. so just, that's another option too
1: i'm familiar with the song i actually don't know the meaning of it we might have to talk at lunch <laughs> <laughs> Oh, is that it? Is that it? I can hear the song in my head. I just like haven't put it together. Doesn't have any time for him when the dad's ready. Ah, yeah. Mm. Mmm. Good. Table turns at the end of life. Table turns. (laughs) Well, well, it's like this. My mom always had time for me. My mom always made time for me and put me and my siblings first. And when she said it's time for hospice, I said. I'm coming and my brother was working but he lives two minutes away. So he'd go to work and then he'd come spend the night at my parents' house. My sister, thanks to a very benevolent boss that she works for, had whatever flexibility she needed to spend time with my mom. So in my mom's final six weeks, she's surrounded by her family because to us it was that important. I only made it three of the six weeks because I still had responsibilities and a family 2,000 miles away and I said, I don't know how long I can stay, but I did what I could. The, honestly the best effort I could and I stayed as long as I could, but it was like, this is important. I have to do this. Nobody, nobody told me I had to. I was afraid I was going to have to convince everybody of how important it was. And thank God my parish said, go and do whatever you need to do. And they said, who's going to serve? I said, I, I don't know. I'm working on it. Like there is no backup in Alaska. So, but, but my mom spent a lifetime of service to others. And I didn't feel a debt. I felt love. So, all right. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna let Father Michael have the last comment. Anything to say about this?
0: Yes. <laughs> How much time
1: do I have? Hey, it's, it's your sure. No, trick. I think I just wanna I wanna
0: just remind what uh, kind of what we're talking about the family here was something Archbishop De said to us many, many times in seminary. <laughs> <laughs> and that is only you can be your spouse's spouse and only you can be your children's parents.
1: That's it? That's it.